0: You know, I think one of the things that really comes through in response to the COVID crisis is look, you need both agility of action and you need scale.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the EdTech podcast and this latest episode of the VocTech podcast, Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of vocational learning and technology. In this episode, we ask the question, what is the role of social impact investing in workforce development?
2: One of the things that we've been quite careful to think about is, you know, where can an impact investor that is seeking some sort of financial return, not, not necessarily a market rate one, it, it depends on the appetite, where can they play a role and where can they not play a role? And there are plenty of places where they simply can't play a role and you know, government and or philanthropy, but in a way, ideally government needs to step up.
1: I'm in conversation with an investor and an analyst tracking the future of workforce development markets. And it's a fascinating listen covering the gig economy, the problem of regional disparity, and the role of technology, including AI, in helping us find jobs and thrive once we are in them. As always, we ask how to keep the human element alive in all of this too.
0: I think the pro-human approach really is thinking about, well, how do we both develop the technologies to to augment the skills of the workers we've got alongside developing the workers? Um, How do we give people access to training and development that helps them develop the skills that do add value alongside the machines um, as they come along? idea of assessment how can we use technology
2: and humans together to assess and understand what people's potential is not just on the basis of their qualifications or what they think they have learned but also the skills and attitudes that they've demonstrated in all sorts of other places
1: a big thank you to the ufi VocTech trust for supporting this series and supporting the use of technology for learning and skills development okay here we go Brilliant. So I'm really delighted. We are here for the final recording of the VocTech podcast for 2021, um, looking at catalyzing the future of workforce development. And I'm very excited to have Joe Ludlow, who is the Impact Investment Director for UFI VoxTech Trust, and Nick Kind, uh, a Senior Director at Titan Partners uh, Strategic Consulting Practice, with me today. It's nice and early, just got nine o'clock. And to tell you a little bit more about Joe and Nick, so Joe is currently the Impact Investment Director for UFI, where he leads the Trust's investments in ventures working with technologies for learning and skills development. Joe also leads UFI's work investing its core investment assets in line with its mission. Prior to UFI, Joe was managing partner at Bethnal Green Ventures, an early stage investment fund working with technology companies targeting positive outcomes for people in healthcare, education, environment and civic engagement. And Joe has long been active in the UK's social and impact investment fields, including establishing NESTA's Impact Investment Team, authoring its work on standards of evidence in impact investing and supporting the establishment of big society capital, And for those who don't know, Joe began his career with Teach First, teaching in a secondary school in East London. For Nick, uh, Nick Kind has worked in strategy, investment, corporate development and digital product management for over 20 years. Um, Up until mid-2016, Nick was head of business insights for the Sprink Publishing Group, where he managed a thought leadership, market intelligence and internal strategy consultancy team for the board. His work in learning has covered all age groups from pre-K to grey and a wide range of geographies and contexts across the world. And pro bono, Nick also advises the charities Big Change and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And he serves on the advisory board for the Educate project. He also acts as a mentor for NHS clinical entrepreneurs and was very proud to help start the Big Change's Reimagining Education Together campaign. Um so welcome Joe and Nick to this episode of the Rock tech podcast. To kick off perhaps you could both tell me a little bit about how you two started to work together.
2: We've we've known each other for a while right Joe. I mean I, you know I, I think I think it started with sort of cups of coffee about impact investment and education around um 2015 2016 possibly even earlier. A bit earlier
0: probably you know, a couple of years before that, I was I was at Nesta at the time um, and we, you know, we started talking about about impact investing in education and the lack of it at the time broadly. I think that's right. And and, and we sort of, you know, kept having those
2: cups of coffee um, over multiple years and, and uh, then ended up working together in this constellation with with Titan and UFI. Um, I guess we started the conversation what, a couple of years ago as as there was a clear overlap in what we're doing. And, and I suppose that's worth describing. Um, You know, Titan, as as, as you said, Sophie, is a, a strategy and also actually an investment bank. And we work across the world in education from very early years right through to um, what we call sort of future of work and employability and human capital management. And the Americans eventually call workforce. Um, And we buy and sell companies and advise all sorts of people from, you know, Foundations and family offices, right through to um, to private equity firms, um, with a lot of work on in impact investment. And we actually set up something, or well, helped to set up something called the Employment Technology Fund for for US foundations, which mirrors really what Joe uh, is doing over on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, and we got talking about that, and then well, Joe can take the rest of the story,
0: I guess. Yeah, and 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 so when I came to UFI just, just under two years ago now, the Employment Technology Fund, is, as Nick flagged, was a kind of real inspiration for what we might try and achieve in setting up a venture fund for UFI. Um, and, and you know, one stimulus for the UFI Venture Fund was all of the amazing innovations and promising ventures coming out of UFI's grant programs, but also the sense that there's this rapidly emerging um uh, uh, sector that's focused on technology for a future of work um, that 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 potentially presents investment opportunities for us, but but where really thinking through both both that market and where uh, an impact focus specialist funder and investor like UFI can best deploy relatively modest funds in the whole scale of venture capital um, into the market. Um, and that's, you know, that was the conversation that, that Nick and I began and developed into how can we collaborate on an ongoing program of market intelligence that tries to understand what's going on in this field and really tries to point out where are the opportunities for having a really big impact for people in a in a rapidly changing workplace.
1: I love the story. And all these good things start with a, a cup of coffee somewhere. So, um, yeah, it'd be good when we can get back to doing that again. So let's move on to some of the sort of publications and findings that you've been working on together. Um, I always like to do a good binge reading session before these podcasts. And yesterday I was reading two reports. So one called The Job Frontier and the other being your sort of more recent quarterly findings. I'd love to know any scenarios of workforce development that you might be able to share with the listeners as well.
2: Look, I mean, we've come up with various scenarios. I think there are are a few things that I'd I'd really draw out of what we're seeing post-COVID. And one of them, I think, particularly is an acceleration of things that we were seeing already. Um, You know, particularly around, obviously, remote working. But there are lots of other things which have accelerated, some of which are, you know, positive and many of which are negative, particularly for, you know, those lower down the income spectrum, those with, um, you know, disabilities, arguably those um, in in less privileged groups. And I think that 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 overarchingly has, I I guess, if there's a concerning trend, we certainly seem to be seeing the inequalities that were happening pre-COVID really starting to accelerate in this environment in all sorts of ways, whether it's around income, uncertainty, or access to some of the, the really essential things like devices and bandwidth um, that really make a difference in this situation.
1: Certainly, when I was reading uh, your reports, there are a couple of things. You know, One was this increase in um, the gig economy, so an 18% rise in zero-hour contracts compared to 2019. I think that was um, here in the UK, but also in the States, forecast that by 2025... Um, over half of the workforce would be sort of self employed or working in the gig economy, um, essentially. Um, and then the other thing that leapt out, just to go back to what you just said about those potentially being more disenfranchised by what's going on, is the sort of regional disparity of opportunity. So someone who is perhaps considered disadvantaged in a certain area of the southeast of England, say, we still have greater opportunity in terms of earnings and education and training than someone in the East Midlands, um, all things being equal. So yeah, those two things really leapt out at me. And I I suppose the big question here is, you know, what is the role of social impact to try and uh, improve this situation?
0: Can can I pick up on the the gig economy um, piece to, to start with? Because I think one of the one of the things that, as I look back over the last year, I think really comes through is that um, a number of these trends um, that we identified, like the gigi, I'm going to just expand it to flexible working, have both both potentially great positive outcomes for people and really negative potential mm-hmm. outcomes for people. And I think what we're seeing is is both of those playing out. And 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 it almost, you know, there's a question about kind of Power in this, as as, as well as um, 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 the, the particular outcome. so people's ability to affect which of those places they they end up. So, you know, the gig economy has become a brand name for denigration of of terms and conditions, um, um, insecure work, um, um, leading leading to people into some very very tough circumstances. Whilst at the same time, others are celebrating portfolio careers, flexible working. Mm. Um, And and technology is sitting underneath this, and on on the one hand, enabling um, uh, employers or people commissioning work to to operate with workers on a gig economy basis, and also building tools that make, for some people, um, flexible working super, super um, uh, possible. So whether that's kind of communication tools and, and, and working from home, or whether it's much more about... Kind of invoicing and billing and kind of making sure that you can manage a whole load of clients um, um, so the question then comes well look if we can if we can invest in technology um, that makes a portfolio career really really successful what can we invest in um, that that works for people in in lower to middle school roles and and in lower paid roles that also makes um, um their their way of working in a gig economy um, much more positive
2: and I build on that a little bit from from what Joe's saying. I mean, you know, in theory, although not greatly in practice at the moment, and I think the theory and the, the potential of this is is really interesting, you know, this that sort of technology in certain sectors and for, for certain skills and jobs should be able to flatten those regional disparities that you're talking about, Sophie. The, the, the question is how, and the question is, you know, who needs to work on that? I, I think one of the things that we've we've done a lot of thinking about and which is a really, really knotty problem because it has a couple of dimensions. I mean, the the first one is um, what of this is short term and what of this is long term? We had a long discussion about this um, in in one of our recent events where, you know, arguably, despite the kind of the horror of what's going on in the hospitality sector, to your points, people are eventually still going to go back and want to have cups of coffee. You know, I'm, I'm missing that a lot. Right. And I think that, you know, we are we are all all eventually going to want to go out and have lunch with our colleagues and our friends and and go out to drinks in the evening. And all of those things that we're all so desperately missing right now, although it's it's obviously an absolute bloodbath for those people working in the in the sector right now. Um, But there are some things which are potentially changing systemically over the long term. You know, the role of the office, for example, I think, is being at least challenged. So I think one, that that's one thing we're thinking about in, in this context. And the other one is something that we, again, we talk a lot about, which is what, what's locally contextually necessary. You know, there are huge differences in terms of the resources and industries and, and what's going on in different places, um, you know, from coastal wind farms to, you know, IT hubs to whatever. And amongst all of that, how an investor can play a role, I, I think, is really, really interesting and challenging, and it's something again that's something that, that Joe and I have been thinking a lot about.
1: I mean, I saw also reference to other grants and funds that are popping up to sort of try and catalyse positive change. Um, were there any of those that you'd like to kind of highlight or share? So I, I know the X Prize was listed, and and there are others.
0: Well, I'll start. I'll start with with. Resolution Ventures and the Resolution Foundation, and UFI is one of a number of partners um, um, supporting their tech program. We were really keen to work with them on that because, uh, as I think we found in all all of this work, looking at workforce development, um, wider issues around um, um, people's ability to thrive um, uh, in a world of work um, um, are inherently interlinked. So, so how can you how can you get access to appropriate training and development um, um, uh, if you haven't got a strong enough um, voice as a worker within your workplace? And then we talked about this actually um, very clearly in the in the report we did at the start of the year, trying to understand the education to employment cycle and all of the different supports and services that are needed to enable people to find work, to stay in work, to progress in work, to have good terms and conditions so they can thrive. Um, um, and the WorkTech um, program at Resolution is is really looking at at, the, at through the lens of um, lower middle income workers um, the you know, the sort of total package of things that people need to to thrive.
2: Again, building on that, one of the things that we've been quite careful to think about is you know where can an impact investor that is seeking some sort of financial return not not necessarily a market rate one it it depends on the appetite where can they play a role and where can they not play a role and there are plenty of places where they simply can't play a role and you know government and or philanthropy but in a way ideally government needs to step up whether it's in you know the provision of of food and, and and basic supplies for people right through to public transport you know joe and i talk a lot about and 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 i wish i could give you the exact detail we talk a lot about a situation in which we discovered that there's there's somewhere i think just just not very far from birmingham perhaps 10 miles from birmingham which is a real employment desert because the public transport links are so poor that people can't get into actually a thriving economy that's not a problem an impact you know impact investor can necessarily fix um There are infrastructural issues, which are probably the the remit of government. But there are other things where perhaps we can get involved. and, And particularly if you consider impact investment all the way through to those people who are considering. And again, this is getting a little bit technical, but it's quite interesting about things like social impact bonds. So financial instruments which pay out based on social outcomes.
0: Picking up on the on the kind of government piece and then then bridging into the impact investment piece, the you know I think one of the things that really comes through in the response to the COVID crisis is you need both agility of action and you need scale, and 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 governments can do scale um, and shifting the whole system really really well, and and I think we sort of see across. Um, the Western world actually governments taking initial responding very fast, but but then when it comes to the implementation, the agility hasn't been there, and that's kind of opened up a space where um, actually you know we, we we've got I think some concerns about how um, um, private sector responses um, um, may play out um, because because they inherently don't have a public and social motivation behind them, and and indeed some of them you know
2: are arguably profiting from a position of real strength in this situation to build their um their position even more i mean i would argue for example that what microsoft and google are doing in this situation while some of it is extremely laudable some of it is highly self-interested um notably you know whilst yes it's great that they are giving away um and and supporting lots of technology training. They do happen to be technology providers who provide, uh, you know, uh, tools and services for people to build technology. So, it it whilst whilst you know, I'm not entirely cynical about it. I think one has to look at these with clear eyes.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so then, I just want to come back to the the impact investing piece because I think historically we've we've sort of thought about impact investing as being a sort of engine of innovation with a with a social motivation. How do we how do we how do we find the innovative novel responses and then take them either to scale through government or through private sector adoption. Um, Maybe there's another piece here. Maybe we need to think um, uh, in this time about how do we really, you know, consolidate resources with a social motivation to bring scale as well as agility and innovation. Because just right now, um, um, you know, the other two paths to scale aren't, aren't, aren't quite doing what what um, um, hmm. we need to do, and um, and you know specifically, I, I think we have to think about: do we, you know, and I say this as 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 somebody who's who's managing a, a ten million venture fund. Um, do we need a series of relatively modest scale um, funds like that, or do we need to start thinking about how we can collaborate in this market with with a social impact lens? Um, the sort of fore?
1: there's so many interesting interesting things to pick up on there. Um... Joe, I don't know how much you can talk about sort of UFI's work around investment assets uh, at this moment without giving away any particulars, I, but is that something you can allude to at this stage?
0: So so we are in the process of reviewing and developing our investment policy and we've, we've now changed our investment policy to have alongside our financial objectives, uh, objectives around aligning our financial assets with our mission um, and, and we have a framework to do that that uses the UN's um, sustainable development goals and we prioritise um, those that are closer to our mission um, such as quality education um, and uh, deprioritize those that are further away and we're in the process of reviewing our um, investment holdings to, to, to put them into that kind of framework and, and, and think about what other choices we might make and, 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 and we're hopefully going to be able to say some more about that in the new year
1: yeah i'm looking forward to that um and then so there's a couple of things i I thought it was really interesting what you said about you know government and the private sector and you know needing some more some different avenues there i suppose um but i also looked at um some of the uh, national responses to covid and the use of technology and the one that jumped out to me was estonia so the others you know there there are a variety of countries that you looked at and to some extent they were different flavors of the of the same approach i suppose whereas estonia because they have this um you know very digital first approach i think it's got here 99% of governmental services remained available online throughout the lockdown 87% of schools were using e solutions prior to covid so there is something there, isn't there, about uh, like you said about the agility and being able to respond at scale. I think I think the
2: the, the thing about you know Estonia and and there are some other places is that they they'd been thinking about how they become a digital government and a digital society for well before the pandemic, and they were able to use that to deliver things um much more quickly and flexibly in this particular situation than many others um and i think there are there are possibly lessons for us in there and and i think that again you know that the, the uk has been I would argue slow to respond with really flexible really getting digital solutions out there which can really, really help. And I think there are plenty there's plenty to learn from from places like that. And, and there are also, you know, there are spots in other places, but it, it's a great sort of example of, of how people with in a you know, let's let's not forget Estonia is a pretty, a pretty small place, therefore, you know, it can get stuff done quick. Hmm. But it's still very, very interesting what they've done.
1: So one thing I'd like to come back to as well. So you talked about you know potentially whether tech giants have too much sway over the, what the future of work looks like. Um, I was also interested in this sort of growth of HR tech as a sector, but also this sort of cautionary tale about optimization and also needing to recognise the fact that we are human and that you know we we also need to look after our sort of mental health and well being um, with some of these uh, optimizing technologies. Um, and when i was thinking about some of those more humanizing ways of approaching technology in the workplace um there are a couple of companies that jumped out so one was prowler.io and one was cloud factories and both to some extent acknowledge automation or the use of ai in the workplace but also then factor in how do we ensure that humans are part of of that process and that they can uh, use their judgment um and and kind of factor in the human element as well what's your kind of view on on where that's all going and 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 what that means in terms of perhaps uh softening some of the um negative aspects of automation for some of those middle or low skilled workers that we were talking about
0: so I think the the sort of big picture here is the The potential for automation technologies to further kind of polarize the labor market as as the jobs that are most easily automated um, um, are the lower skilled jobs and the jobs that are uh, least easily automated and greatest in demand are the, are the, are the roles that are kind of building the machines and you know that can take you down the kind of most pessimistic view of how we move through this fourth industrial revolution of, of a kind of of mass redundancy for for, for most people and a, and a, a core elite of, of engineers and programmers um, coding up the machines and, and it's sort of you know doomsday and uh, you know we've got some scenarios in the, in, in the reports that really are there as provocations for for different versions of doomsday if you like and 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 measuring in what direction we travel so I don't think we're actually going to get there Um, but in order to not get there then we've got to have um, what I would describe as the kind of pro-human approach to this future work Um, and businesses like Prowler I guess are an example of it but but I think the pro-human approach really is thinking about well How do we both develop the technologies to to augment the skills of the workers we've got alongside developing the workers? Um, How do we give people um, access to training and development um, that helps them develop the skills that do add value alongside the machines um, uh, as they come along? I think we then have to think about really what's the role of um, employers in all of this Perhaps you might see a trend at the moment towards the kind of consumerization of, of adult learning, the onus being on the individual to and the opportunity being for the individual to take that on. But that then creates a gap where actually employers might want to sort of get rid of the workforce that doesn't have the skills they need now and assume that the market will supply them with, with new workers that, that do have the skills. And maybe we need a kind of different approach to that where, where transitions training people up um um, is actually seen as rather crucial to to being able to meet your, your labor needs. And super interestingly, we've we've
2: last week, there was a really interesting development on that front in Germany in that um, Daimler, you know, who are the, the, the people behind um, Mercedes and, and others announced a one billion euro commitment to engaging with the future of their workforce, which they negotiated with what's called their Works Council. Um, over over in stuttgart you know you've got a situation where a major european corporation is really visibly not just um acknowledging the problem but committing a very very substantial amount of money to that i think i think that's that's emblematic of the challenge that we're facing um
0: and, and i think sorry no no i'll just say so, so how how do we create the 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 business cases for investing in transformation of a workforce internally as daimler have done um um, to encourage other workplaces to do that um is there a role again for impact investing in thinking that through right you know
2: yeah and and i think look i'm just commenting a couple on on a couple of the things that, that joe just said you know my personal view and you know, it, it's it's as good or as bad as anyone else's, right? But um, is that I don't think we're we, we're necessarily going to run out of jobs here, you know. And until everybody in the world is well fed and fulfilled, I would argue there are plenty of jobs for people to be doing. The challenge is the transition, and the challenge is making sure that people are there to do the jobs that are there to be done. Um, And, you know, for me, one of the really interesting places for investment and and indeed impact investment is around the positive aspects of technology, the the places where technology can help us do that. So, for example, one of the areas that we we are particularly interested in as a a firm, as Titan, but I think Joe is also interested in more generally, is, is the idea of assessment. How can we use technology and humans together to assess and understand what people's potential is, not just on the basis of their qualifications or what they think they have learned, but also the skills and attitudes that they've demonstrated in all sorts of other places. You know, Actually, if you've worked as a Brownie leader, that shows a whole set of communication skills and administrative skills that you may not even realize or acknowledge that you've got. And and I think that 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 whole area of how we can help to both help people understand what their potential is and ch- help them chart their progress to their next work, which works for them, is a really, really interesting area. For example, Sophie.
0: And, and we have our investment in a business called Sonic Jobs, um, which is a, a mobile device-based job finding app um, where chatbot Julie talks to you about what work you've done and helps you to understand what skills you might have demonstrated and to build up a CV from that um, it, it is, is a perfect example of that
1: absolutely fascinating and one thing that came off the back of that as well which popped out at me um, this learning and work institute report that just one in three adults in the UK who were out of work took part in lockdown learning compared to over half of those who are in employment and I suppose this goes back to you know whether the onus will be on um, you know the individual the employer or government uh, or others or a mix of every everyone together on reskilling and upskilling but I, that, that that fact that you know the employer to some extent provides greater access to to learning sort of shows the potential for those out of work to get further and further more isolated more out of learning and training so yeah i thought that was really interesting
0: i think there's some encouraging innovation in this respect uh, but 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 maybe we need to come back to the kind of uh, the behavioral economics uh, around it but but the the emergence of training models that um, are directly linked to employment outcomes, um, the emergence of boot camps that, that, that either you know, guarantee you a job or give you a very high visibility on um, their, their job outcomes, so they're quite specific with employers sitting there at the end. So um, making the incentive for participating in, in, in training seem really, really clear and, and not mysterious. Um, um, Nick talked about social impact bonds, you know, the, the income share agreement um, um, uh, as the consumer facing um, implementation of that so that you don't pay for your training until you get a job and you pay it as a as a proportion of, of the salary that you earn above a minimum threshold so that it's, it's affordable. Um, again, we're trying to reduce the kind of barriers to accessing vocational training that definitely isolated Um, um, people out of out of the labor market are facing
2: and I think again you know just just reflecting on some of this one one of the things that we've been grappling with is can we help in situations where actually part of this is about people frankly people's mental health you know where where they need you know it's it's bloody horrible you know, being stuck and applying for hundreds and hundreds of jobs. You know, we've seen the BBC reports on the news of of people doing that. How do you help people get through that situation? How do you give them the resilience that's required to, to push through that? Are there solutions that we can come up with there? Or is that reliant on, you know, the enhanced job centres on some of the charities? And, you know, Joe and I have, have worked and spoken with some of some amazing people who are really, really supporting people one by one. Again, there's a really interesting thing there but it's not necessarily just about qualifications or skills or knowledge it can also be about attitude Mm -hmm. and where you find yourself Mm -hmm. and there's a whole area around that I think which is very very interesting but you know and very very important.
1: So if I were to ask you both if there are particular ventures or innovations that you've, you've basically seen coming up are there any that you'd like to share that that you think are particularly interesting, or or would you prefer to keep that kind of broad because you don't want to go into individual cases? <laughs> no, 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 look, I'm, I'm I'm good to talk about one one thing. I mean, this is this is not a panacea. I'm I'm really
2: really interested in there's a range of companies which are using artificial intelligence to help both people and organisations understand what they are good at and how they might work together. And who and how companies might or might not hire or deploy people differently, and that that has, it's 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 fascinating for a couple of reasons. My first of all, you know, it has immense potential, particularly in the areas of if if you like diversity and inclusion, because you can start hopefully to identify people who are great for the job rather than anything else, mm-hmm. entirely independent of you know how they present themselves. On the flip side, you've got to make sure that those algorithms aren't making the wrong decisions, and there are plenty of examples of that having happened. I mean, some notorious ones. So, I mean, I I find that a hugely interesting area. Is how do we work with that amazing potential power of that technology for good and for progress, and to help people, you know, understand where where they might deploy people or where they might be deployed. Uh, I, I'm fascinated. And, you know, there are some great examples of that. You know, there's there's a company called Applied, there's a company called Gap Square, there are a bunch of others, um, a company that recently raised some funding called Temporal, um, who are all around and in this space, you know, ProFinder, there are lots of them um, in the UK, and, and I'm I'm really, really interested in that
0: space. I, I'm going to pick up on what seem like they're different issues, but I, I think they're inherently connected. So so the idea of what do career paths look like and the idea of how do you get experience moving into a career path? So how do you know when you when you begin to look at a new new role, whether you're a young person, big, big issue right now, entering the labor market about what other right should I do a course? Should I go and get a job? What type of course? What, you know, what are the good employers? How do you navigate the path to, to what you think you want to do and through that through that career? Uh, how do you do it when you're in middle to late career, when, when um, uh, you, you, you may find yourself embarking on a second or third career? Um, and that's a, another area that, that's been um, under looked at. And the linked issue is how do you get work experience? Um, um, and, and, and UFI in the past has, has funded projects in this area, so, such as um, Work Finder, which is really focused on young people and getting them access to a series of work experiences but, but but what does getting work experience look like if you're trying to change career for the second or third time um, and then the sort of final dimension to that is what what does navigating a career look like or getting work experience kind of look like in lower and middle income roles because i think lots of the framing of these types of services actually is is quite um, white collar kind of senior professional rather than um, actually you know I've been working in the internal combustion engine um, production industry for the last 15 years and and now I'm looks like I, I need to move into clean energy in some way but but how do I do that in a kind of production context so 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 we're looking for ventures in those areas and we're only seeing that you're only seeing a few at the moment. But part, part of that is the challenge and the trite phrase if if you know
2: the the soundbite Sophie is about you know solutions for the linked out rather than the mm. linked in.
1: Do you kind of uh, anticipate that uh, impact investors or investors generally you'll start to see more of them paying attention to this lower or middle skilled band of uh, employees, or or is that uh, slightly too optimistic? No,
2: look, it's 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 a hard question, um, and. We are, we are already seeing a lot of that happening in the U.S. So there are plenty of investors, impact investors in the U.S. who are actively looking at this whole issue with multiple lenses, whether those are the lens of, of race uh, in, in, in you know, what, after what's happened uh, with, with George Floyd and, and, and Black Lives Matter, whether it's through the lens of place, where there are different places and obviously there are intersections between all of these things. There is a great deal going on um, in the U.S. There is less happening on this side of the Atlantic and the, the real question for me is whether or not more will happen. We are seeing and hearing of more organizations, foundations um, really looking at this and, and understanding the challenge here. I haven't seen many of the, the big philanthropists, you know, individuals target this as a particular area yet i would absolutely love to to see that happen so i think we're at an earlier stage sadly over on this side of the atlantic and particularly in the uk i think that's partly because of our tradition of having a much larger social safety net than in the us so perhaps it's not as clear and pressing Mm. but you know I'm, i'm i'm hopeful that it will happen i think i think it can't not in many ways and i think many people are holding you know institutions and and arguably individuals to account as to where they deploy their wealth um and i think that the, the that pressure is only going to become greater
0: I, I just want to add two points on that um firstly i think um we'd slightly forgotten um what it was like to have really high levels of unemployment and and um barriers to accessing employment because you know the headline numbers uh suggested that that we were in very high levels of employment for many many people they were, they were still struggling but but you know, at a at a macro level, we've taken our eye off, off off that. That's changing as we speak in a very very sudden way. So this is going to be at the top of people's agendas. What follows from that um, uh, is back to my point about how do we how do we combine and collaborate in response so that we actually bring some meaningful scale and momentum to it? Because um, you know, uh, individual. Uh, social and impact investors kind of responding to the applications they see um, will do good things locally, but it won't be a systemic response. And Nick's comment about place I find very interesting because maybe there's one or two places where a consolidation of of initiatives um, um, could really show what what works and what doesn't work in quite in, in quite an interesting way um, in, in in a new set of challenges as well as old ones. This is. We might be going back to levels of unemployment like the early 1980s, but we're in a completely different technology environment and work environment um, to respond to.
1: Really, really fascinating. It's, it's, my mind is worrying um, Well, we are just about coming to time. So I, I'd like to end with one one question, just slightly adjunct. Slightly but um, I always like to ask. Uh, our guests any anything interesting that you're reading at the moment that you'd like to share with our listeners
2: i i just really enjoyed reading a book which kind of helped me through lockdown which was a book called a gentleman in moscow by a man called amor towels which you you may or may not have come across and it's a it's a sort of meditation on being stuck and what you make of it um, and, and I think it, 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 it's it's delightfully written and playful, uh, which I think we all need at this particular time. So so absolutely not associated necessarily with this subject, but I, I've just finished reading it and I particularly enjoyed it. So it's um, a further recommendation for folk. Um, well, I, I'm
0: going to take that. I'm going to go even further left field. <laughs> um, so I just finished reading a book called Not Working by a psychoanalyst called Josh Cohen. Um, And it's a series of, um, if you like, uh, um, characterizations of different reasons for not working and their pros and cons. uh, and and and, 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 talk, and talking about a number of kind of uh, famous um, individuals through history and their approach to not working
1: well it's, it's like the handbook for universal basic income isn't it so you know you have the have that and then have your have your book on not working and off you go. um that's brilliant I've been reading the um an epidemic uh anthology so it's all about it's got uh, Daniel Defoe's um fictional uh write-up of the plague which is lovely um so anyway that's a little bit of uh, light relief at the end of this episode so um Nick and Jay thank you so much that's absolutely fascinating and so much for people to to dig into and hopefully a bit of a rallying cry for uh, impact investors and other investors as well I think so um Thank you both so much, and uh, hopefully we'll catch up again uh, at a future point. Thanks Thanks for having us, Sophie. That's the end of this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening in and also to my amazing guests this week. Um, And another reminder that uh, grants for early stage projects in vocational learning um, through VocTech Seed. Um, and grants of between £15,000 and £50,000 for projects lasting from three to 12 months are open in January Um, and there are workshops uh, going on from now to January to answer any questions you have and to gauge interest. So do get signed up to those if that sounds like something that you should be working on. All the links for that in the show notes, along with details on all this week's guests and their work. That's it for now. Take care. Bye bye.